Welcome to Hey, Remember the 80s? I'm Carrie. And I'm Joe. Please remember, we're not professional podcasters or music critics. We're just your oral stimulators, and we're talking about 80s music, so give us a break. Carrie, I'd like to just go back and remind people that you said oral, A-U-R-A-L. Yes, thank you, Joe, for clarifying. (laughs) Oral stimulators, yes, that's what's on my business card. (laughs) Joe, welcome. Welcome, Carrie. Welcome to you, and welcome to any new listeners. Welcome to loyal listeners. We found some in Corona, California, Clinton, Connecticut, and Colding, Denmark. Welcome. Yes, all those folks can check out our Facebook at facebook.com slash HRT80S. We also have a Twitter at HRT80S. Yes, we do. Joe. Carrie tidbits. Yeah, well, let's say right up front. Yeah. <laughs> this is We're fun. kind of. We're doing off. a very lo fi podcast because I'm having problems with my internet. So right now, Joe and I are talking on the phone with AirPods in and talking into microphones separately and recording our yeah. audio. So there's that a way. chance you might hear some background noise. Or it just might seem strange because this yes, is completely it's already different. Off. You called us oral stimulators <laughs> at the beginning, and there's no recovering. So, well, Joe sounds very different than usual. So I just feel like I'm already off kilter. It's not as robust yeah. in my ears as it usually is. So it's me. I promise. I love Juice Newton. <laughs> All right. Yes. Tidbits. I have one. We talked probably several months ago at this point about a John Waite documentary that came out. I mean, who knows where it even actually appeared, if anywhere. Supposedly was released, I think, back in like August, and it has now arrived on Tubi. Tubi. T-U-B-I. Everyone has access to it somehow. It's free. The documentary is called John Waite The Hard Way. And so I watched it. I told you, Joe, two and a half stars out of five. Yeah, that's not good. It started off pretty good. It was strange. It was like there was no plan for the documentary. Like it started off, talked about his work with the babies and then, you know, kind of transitioned to his solo career. And then it just kind of sputtered out. There just wasn't a whole lot about anything further than that. It was made during the pandemic and it was very focused on how he likes to tour And so he was feeling very isolated, (laughs) as everyone was, but you know, that he just wanted to get back out touring. And I don't know what to say about it. It just was like strange. Like it just didn't seem to have an outline. You know how like, and when you were back in school, your professor was always like, you got to do the outline first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This one did not. Without giving too much away, can you explain why it's called John Waite the Hard Way? That's the name of one of his albums. I didn't even know that. Yeah. If there was a thesis, it was kind Mm -hmm. of like he never did things the way he was supposed to. He never fell in line with the traditional record company way of making records and fought against that. It was implied that he was difficult to work with. I don't know. That's weird. If you're in charge of the narrative, right? Put in there, I'm, you know, a jerk in the studio. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. But the most interesting thing about it was during the end credits, you know, it had a list of thank you to these people for their participation and agreeing to be interviewed. And one of the people was Nina Blackwood, but she was never in the movie. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I've got to find out the story about that. 
there's got to be something that they could have included. So, yeah, it was disappointing. Well, any music performances? Like, did they show them, like, on stage or old footage? There was lots of old footage, lots of, you know, new footage. He still got it. I enjoyed that part of it. I love to see the performances and all that stuff, but there could have been more to it. Okay. Well, I guess if you're a diehard John Waite fan, maybe watch it, but otherwise, no? Yeah, I think that's a good summation. Well, I have a tidbit, Carrie, and it's also movie-related. I don't know if you've heard much about the new movie Air. I have. I'm sorry, you have heard of it? Yes, I have heard of it. And it's funny that you have this in the tidbit, because I think I read the exact article that you must have read. Was it on Variety? I think so, yes. Yeah, I was intrigued from the very beginning and from the headline. So the movie Air is set in 1984. It stars Ben Affleck and Matt Damon? Yes. So apparently, Ben Affleck sent the music supervisor for the movie, Andrea Von Forster, a playlist called 1984. So I guess they wanted to set the scene, like, these are the kind of songs we should put in the movie, and then apparently they just went after all of those songs from the playlist. There are 23 needle drops in the movie. It seems like a lot for a a movie not about music. (laughs) Some interesting things from the article, they talked about how Cyndi Lauper agreed to let them use Time After Time, because she's apparently a big Viola Davis fan. Who isn't, really, right? (laughs) And most of the songs are from 1984, but they did decide to use the song Money for Nothing for the main title, even though that one is from 1985. They said it just fits so perfect. Originally, they were going to use Dirty Laundry by Don Henley. Interesting. And they used the band Tangerine Dream. They used some of their pieces from 1980s movies for seven different score cues. And they even hired former member Paul Hesslinger to compose two additional pieces for the movie. Wow, they really went all out. I didn't see exactly which songs or which pieces they used and from what movies. I know for sure something from Firestarter. But gosh, they could have used stuff from Risky Business. Um, They did music for Legend. I also read they did the music for the movie Three O'Clock High that we talked about but have never seen. Okay, okay. I wasn't super interested in seeing this movie, but then when I saw this article, I got 50% more interested (laughs) in watching (laughs) it. Well, I started out at about zero, (laughs) and I'd say I'm at about 70% right now. Okay. I like that phrase, needle drop. That seems like a new way that people have been describing music in movies and TVs, like within the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. I like it too. Any more tidbits, Joe? I think that's it for now. I think that covers it. So let's get into our main segment. Joe, we're going to have a birthday bash. Oh, fun. We've done this once before. We're going to do a birthday bash for 80s acts that are celebrating birthdays this week. And we are starting with Shirley Holloman, who was born on April 18th, 1962. When she was 18, she had a boyfriend named Andrew Ridgely. And one day, he suggested she come dance while he and his friend George performed in a local club. And though she and Andrew eventually broke up, she continued to perform with Wham! as a backup singer, but never was an official member of the group and only got paid per performance. After Wham! broke up, she and the other backup singer, Pepsi DeMac, 
formed a duo called Pepsi and Shirley and released their first single in early 1987. The lead single, Heartache, made it to number two on the U.S. dance chart and peaked at 78 on the Hot 100. It also made it all the way to number two on the UK chart, held out of the top spot by George Michael and his duet with Aretha Franklin, I Knew You Were Waiting For Me. Pepsi and Shirley only released one more album, but Shirley retired from the business in the early 90s to raise a family with her husband, Martin Kemp of Spandau Ballet. And the two are still together and appeared on the UK version of The Masked Singer earlier this year as Cat and Mouse. I should have found a clip of that. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be interesting. So, Joe, were you familiar with Shirley Holloman? Uh, You know, this is a song we play on the attic. Mm -hmm. It's actually a song that I enjoy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like this one a lot. You know, I've always heard the name Pepsi and Shirley and knew that they had something to do with Wham, but never had really known the whole story. I didn't know that she was Andrew Ridgely's girlfriend at one point. You know, when I was reading this article about her and she was talking about her days in Wham, she was just talking about, you know, how her and George and Andrew were just best friends. And she was like, it was so fun to like just tour around the world with her best friends and see them become so successful. It was so sweet. It was just the best. Yeah, I love that. She must have known what a good gig it was, you know, to stay Mm -hmm. with it even after they broke up. Wish they had some more success as a duo after they stepped out on their own, Pepsi and Shirley. I agree. At least we have this song. Good for her, for bagging Martin Kemp of Spandau (laughs) Ballet. That's that's good. Good for you. And, you know, there was another Wham! backup singer, D.C. Lee. Haven't we talked about her? We talked about another, yes, another one that ended up working with George Michael. Oh, we just talked about her recently. I can't remember her name. I think that might be someone different. The one I'm talking about went to work on albums with the Style Council in 84. Oh, yes, And then she married Paul Weller. Yeah, sorry. You're correct. She was the first. It was Shirley in D.C. And when D.C. left to go to the Style Council, then Pepsi arrived. Yes. Gosh, I wonder who Pepsi bagged. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, they were all getting those guys. I really love Heartache. It's so fun. I can tell why it went to number two on the dance chart. This was a bop back in the day. Love it. Carrie, if we didn't ever talk about this, Pepsi and Shirley released their joint autobiography in 2021. It's called Pepsi and Shirley. It's all in black and white. And they give an account of their time touring the world. I did not know that. That's interesting. I would read that. Oh, for sure. For sure. Carrie, this next birthday is going to knock your socks off. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Because also celebrating a birthday on April 18th is a band called The Triplets. And yeah, they were triplets. Sisters Diana, Sylvia, and Vicky Villegas. So three birthdays. Top that. In 1986, when the trio was just 21 years old, they won the MTV contest The Basement Tapes. We've talked about The Basement Tapes a couple of times before. It was a series on MTV where videos by unsigned bands were pitted against each other and viewers voted for the best. 
The triplets won with their song, Boys. They secured a deal with Elektra Records and released an EP, but the single version of Boys failed to chart. It was not until their next album in 1991 that they finally charted with the single You Don't Have to Go Home Tonight. After that, the ladies, who were of Mexican heritage, began releasing Spanish-language music and had a handful of hits on the Latin chart in the mid-90s. Though they took a long hiatus, the sisters are back recording together again, and they just released an EP earlier this year. It's so interesting. We always talk about the basement tapes, and I thought it was like a year-long thing, but I don't know. I think there was like... They had multiple winners, right? Yeah, yeah. We've talked about winners before, and it was. I think I would remember if Triplets won. Yeah, but it's funny because, I mean, the song Boys is fine, but I don't understand how this won over... I mean, I don't know what the other songs were, but (laughs) it doesn't sound so great. It's a little sedate. Yeah. (laughs) It didn't really do much for me. I was all excited. I saw the title of the song. I was like, yeah, (laughs) this is going to be the one for me. And it was just, I don't know, kind of flat. I was just shocked that it had won something on MTV like that. Whenever I think of MTV, I just always think of outlandish stuff. And the other thing that I think was featured on the Basement Tapes is that Dog Police song. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I know. So that's what I always think of when I think of Ugh. the basement tapes. And so then I was expecting this to be nuts, but it yeah. wasn't. <laughs> it was well, pretty basic. After hearing that song, my favorite triplet musical group is still the Del Rubio triplets. <laughs> is that the one? No, they weren't the ones that were featured in the Pointer Sisters. No, 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 they weren't. Or were they? No, it was the Andrews sisters, I think, that was in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the ones that were on PB's Playhouse, and they did a cover of Whip It. I know who you're talking about now, yes. Were they on Full House, too, in an episode? I'm sure they were on a lot of different things. (laughs) I remember who you're talking about now. Yeah, yeah. James Newell Osterberg Jr. was born on April 21st, 1947, but we know him better as Iggy Pop. He has a long, detailed history that we could never do justice to here, so let's just fast forward to the late 70s when Iggy is a solo artist who had done two stints with a band called The Stooges and had also released several solo albums produced by David Bowie. He signed to Arista Records and released a couple albums that weren't commercially successful. He promised the label his third would be more commercial, and the resulting album, Party, was released in June of 1981. It was later described by one critic this way. Part of Iggy Pop's unique sort of integrity is that the man doesn't seem to know how to sell out, even when he tries, and Party, one of the strangest albums of his career, is living proof. Oof. (laughs) Iggy had wanted Phil Spector or Mike Chapman to produce the single Bang Bang, but Tommy Boyce, who had primarily worked with the Monkees, was chosen instead. Rockets. Shoot off the space. And buildings. 
song made it to number 35 on the dance chart and David Bowie would cover it in 1987. What do you think about Bang Bang? Let me start off by saying this. Okay. You know those kind of artists where you're not familiar with their music, but you just get a sense early on in your life? Not for me. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Okay. I think that's really how I felt about Iggy Pop. So I put this on expecting to be like, oh, here we go. Here's going to be something crazy that I'm going to be like, this is nuts. Uh-huh. Instead, I felt like it was kind of straightforward compared to what I was expecting. Uh-huh. And I didn't really even mind it. And I thought, well, maybe I do like some Iggy Pop music. I enjoyed it. I was shocked that this one was not from an album produced by David Bowie because it sounds like Bowie. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense, I guess, in the context of he was trying to make a more commercial record. It sounds like he was even trying to smooth out his voice. Whenever I think of Iggy Pop, I think of he's got kind of like a gruff voice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And he sounds yeah. way more melodic on this song than I would have ever thought he could get. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, too. I really did. It's a nice little ditty. Mm-hmm. Well, Iggy had the biggest hit of his career in 1986 with the song Real Wild Child, parentheses Wild One. It was a cover of a song originally written and recorded in the late 50s by Australian artist Johnny O'Keefe. Iggy's version was from the album Blah Blah Blah, and Carrie David Bowie did produce this record. It's since been reported that Iggy disowned this album, calling it a Bowie album in all but name. Real Wild Child went all the way to number 10 on the UK chart. Here's a clip, even though you've heard it in every commercial and movie ever. In the U.S., it reached number 27 on the rock chart. It was later featured in the movies Problem Child, Problem Child 2, Crocodile Dundee, (laughs) and it was covered by Christopher Okasik, Rick's son, for the movie Pretty Woman. (gasps) I thought Iggy Pop sang that version. We already talked about this, don't you remember? Uh... This came up within the last several months. I just did a spot for Charlie's where I talked about how Iggy Pop's version was in Pretty Woman. (laughs) I've been spreading disinformation. You have been. In 2008, Iggy teamed up with Australian rock band Jet to record another version. And Iggy just released his 12th studio album, and he's performing at the Cruel World Festival in May. Yeah, this is what I think of when I think of Iggy Pop, this song and this voice. This doesn't sound like Bowie to me. I don't know. I guess it does a little bit, but I thought it was really funny that he said this was like basically a David Bowie album. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I enjoy it. But yeah, it is kind of one of those songs that you've heard too many times. Mm -hmm. I'm glad, though, that he, Iggy, is still out there rocking. And um, I didn't know that he was performing at Cruel World. That'll be fun. Yeah, why don't they stream stuff like that? They always stream Coachella and maybe not Bonnaroo, but maybe it is Bonnaroo, but they should stream some of these other ones. You know, I'd like to see Mm -hmm. some of these performances. Well, I guess you have to go, Joe. 
Uh, Buy your so ticket. Far. Yeah. <laughs> also celebrating a birthday on April 21st is Robert Smith of The Cure, but we've talked about The Cure many times over. So let's learn more about the band Cowboy Junkies, whose guitarist Michael Timmons was also born on the 21st. He met Alan Anton in kindergarten, and the two formed their first band together in high school. They had a couple moderately successful bands before they moved to Toronto in 1985 and recruited Michael's brother Pete as their drummer and his sister Margot as their vocalist and took on the name The Cowboy Junkies. They recorded their first album in the rehearsal space they had been performing in since the beginning, a garage at their rented house. They would break through with their second album, The Trinity Session, which was a live album recorded inside Toronto's Church of the Holy Trinity. The band members all played and sang into one single microphone, and they had to lie to the church and say they were making a Christmas record in order to get permission. Their cover of the Velvet Underground classic Sweet Jane made it to 50 on the rock chart and 5 on the modern rock chart in late 1984 and charted again in 1994 when it was featured in the movie Natural Born Killers. This time it made it to number nine on the modern rock chart and 52 on the airplay chart. The group released their 19th album last year and they are touring this spring. This song, Sweet Jane by Cowboy Junkies, this is one that I definitely would have told you was from the 90s. And so when I got to the part where the entry was talking about how it got re-released in 1994, I was like, oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> That's why. Is, yeah. <laughs> so you knew this song in the 90s? Yes, absolutely. You did. Did you have the Natural Brun Killer soundtrack? No, I did not. <laughs> oh, we did. <laughs> what else is on there? Oh, L7 shit list. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense why you had it then. (laughs) I mean, I think this got a lot of MTV airplay around the time. Okay. I don't think I was familiar with the Velvet Underground before I heard this cover. So this is kind of one of those things where it's like this cover always seems like the original to me, (laughs) which I know is blasphemous. Don't know if I've ever even heard the original. Is that okay to say? Yeah, I guess so. But yeah, this is really beautiful. I love the whole story about how they started recording albums in their garage, and then they recorded this album in a church. I don't know anything else by the Cowboy Junkies at all, but this song is beautiful. What did they tell the church that their band name was? That's a good point. (laughs) Good thinking with that Christmas thing, but... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've seen the name Cowboy Junkies my whole life. Mm Mm-hmm. If I heard the song on the soundtrack, I did not know who it was, or I skipped it, or who knows. I just felt like I knew what kind of music they would play, and then when I heard this today, I was like, I was right. It's exactly what I thought they were going to sound like. It was fine. Do you know many of their other songs? No, I do not know anything else by the Cowboy Junkies. Uh, Oh, you just said that, yeah. (laughs) I was just going to say, like, are they all this slow and moody? I think for the most part, I mean, I think that you would characterize them as folk or like Americana, maybe. So 
I think it's all sort of in the same vein. Well, I'll have to check some more out then. All right. It doesn't sound like you wanted to based off this show. (laughs) I know. I'm an enigma. Yeah. Our next birthday boy is Jack Blades, born on April 24th, 1954. He started playing guitar when he was eight and started college as a pre-med student, but then took a leave of absence to pursue music that turned into a permanent hiatus. He was playing in a band called Rubicon in the late 70s, and when that group disbanded, he, along with two other members, formed a new band that eventually changed its name to Night Ranger. I think they were just Ranger first. You're right, and they had to change their name because there was some other band called that. And they had already like printed so many copies of their first album. Yeah, well, that's why you got to do <laughs> a copyright search, Night Ranger. Oh, that's the lawyer in you talking. <laughs> yeah. Night Ranger had 11 top 100 singles in the 1980s, and they also hit the rock chart 12 times. Their biggest hit was the ballad Sister Christian, which became somewhat of a curse because their record label thereafter expected a ballad on every album. For their fifth album that was released in late 1988, the band resisted and didn't write one, so the label pressured them to record the song I Did It For Love, written by famous songwriter Russ Ballard. The band always wrote their own songs and didn't like the plan, but they eventually gave in. Then the record label released the song as the lead single. Of course they did. Mm-hmm. It actually did well on the rock chart, making it to number 16, but it topped out at number 75 on the Hot 100. After that album, Blades left the group to form Damn Yankees with Tommy Shaw of Styx and Ted Nugent. Later in the 90s, Blades and Shaw broke off into a duo called Shaw Blades, but he's been back with Night Ranger for many years, and they're on a big tour this year. They're on that Brett Michaels Party Gras tour. <laughs> they are, yeah. Them and Jefferson Starship. They are, at least for some. That was when I was looking at their yeah. dates. They're on some of those Party Gras. And they're going to be at uh, Summerfest. Mm-hmm. I haven't given my big Summerfest spiel yet, but the Summerfest calendar was announced. And quite a few acts that... Lots of 80s. Yeah, that I need to try to go see this year. Primarily Debbie Gibson. I will be there for Debbie yes. Gibson. That's the big ticket item this year. Did I say on here that I'm going to see her this summer at River City Casino? I'm excited for that. All right. Well, I did it for Love, Carrie. Did you love it? No, I mean, I like it. I think I had this song confused with some other, I don't know if it was a Night Ranger song or a Survivor song. I was thinking it was going to be something different. And when it started playing, I was like, this is not the song I thought it was. But I didn't mind it. If they had to record a ballad, then this wasn't a bad one. But no, I mean, this isn't really one that I'm going to seek out again. I agree. I love finding out that songs were written by Russ Ballard. (laughs) Okay. Did you know he wrote the solo singles for both women from ABBA? Oh, yeah, that's right. Can't Shake Loose and I Know There's Something Going On. Yes, you are correct. I think that's awesome. Like, how did he swing that? 
And Russ Ballard is the one that had his own hit called On the Rebound, right? On the Rebound. On the Rebound. rebound. (laughs) I like that one. I like that one. I do like him. I enjoy him. What else did he write? Um, You Can Do Magic. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, he is a famous songwriter. Probably a big coup for the record label to get him to get a song to Night Ranger. I think I'll give I Did It For Love a few more chances. It kind of benefits from being probably a ballad that you haven't heard over and over again. So yeah, give mm-hmm. it a listen if you haven't heard it, folks. Well, finally, on April 22nd, 1951, Paul Carrick was born. And we have talked about Paul Carrick before as recently as episode 198 and as far back as episode three in that seminal segment, Know Your Pauls. Know Your Pauls. <laughs> that was so much fun. I know. We were so young back then. I know. Well, in that episode, Joe, we dubbed him the band slut with good reason. He worked with Ace, Roxy Music, and Squeeze all before 1982. And then after that, he joined up with Nick Lowe in a similar arrangement to one that Nick Lowe had previously had with Dave Edmonds. So Carrick and Lowe had a band called Noise to Go, but they released solo albums under Carrick and Lowe's names. And they also backed Lowe's wife, Carlene Carter, and my buddy John Hyatt on albums. And Carrick also apparently worked as a session musician for the Smiths and the Pretenders. Is that nuts? He's worked with like all of our faves, all (laughs) of them. Exactly. Before working with Mike and the Mechanics. Oh my God, it doesn't end. No. But we're going to talk about one of my favorite songs from Carrick's solo career, Don't Shed a Tear. In fact, this was number 38 on the first top 40 that I put together way back just before we started this podcast four years ago. Don't Shed a Tear was written in the early 80s by Eddie Schwartz, who co-wrote Hit Me With Your Best Shot and who hit the top 40 one time as a solo artist with All Our Tomorrows in 1981. Schwartz had intended to record Don't Shed a Tear with a band he was in at the time, but that plan fell apart, and several years later, Carrick recorded it for his a total of 23 weeks on the Hot 100 and three weeks at its peak of number nine. It also made it to number five on the rock chart. In the 90s, Carrick formed yet another band that included Rupert Hine. But these days, Carrick is back to releasing solo albums on his own independent label. God, the stories he must have. I know, for real. I would love to interview him. But what? where would you mm-hmm. even start What would you, you know, what would you even talk about? Gosh. But Don't Shed a Tear. I love this song so much. I don't know what it is about it. I love his voice. 
I think he's got such a clear voice that rings out. And um, this has always been one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. I like it a lot. I, it never made any of my top 40 lists, but it's definitely one of those songs you hear it in the morning and it's in your head all day and you're singing it and you don't mind, you know? Yeah. I like it. And the version you put on the playlist, I don't know if that's the album version. It felt like it had a really long outro with some ad libs and he says something about crocodile tears and that part just really <laughs> tickled me. <laughs> I don't know if that's the album version, but that's definitely the version that I remember because I think that is yeah. one of my favorite parts too. Oh. Well, that was a fun little birthday bash, Joe. Glad to celebrate all of those folks and hope they had fabulous birthdays or have them. They're all coming up. We don't have a cute name for our next segment. I guess it could be considered Songs from the Electric Fetus, which is the name we gave our alternative music segment way back in the day. But we talk about that kind of music so much on the podcast now, it doesn't need its own segment. Anywho. This is a song that I've wanted to bring to the podcast since seeing it featured on DJ Cynthia's Twitch stream a couple months back. And DJ Cynthia is a Milwaukee area DJ who you can find on Twitch doing amazing sets semi-regularly. She usually does some Friday happy hour streams and Sunday brunch streams, and her name is spelled S-Y-N-T-H-I-A. So find her on Facebook and Twitch under DJ Cynthia. So the song in question is called, How Can the Laboring Man Find Time for Self-Culture? And it's by a band called Martini Ranch. They started in 1982 by Andrew Todd Rosenthal and Bill Paxton. And yeah, I'm talking about Bill Paxton, the actor. They were heavily influenced by Devo and released their first EP in 1986. And three members of Devo actually played on the EP. How Can the Laboring Man was the title track. The video is pretty bizarre, to say the least, and features a number of famous actors that Paxton had worked with, like Anthony Michael Hall and Michael Bean. Remember how Bill Paxton and Judge Reinhold had appeared in the Pat Benatar video for Shadows of the Night? Well, Judge Reinhold makes an appearance here as well. In 1988, James Cameron would direct a video for the Martini Ranch song Reach from their one full-length album called Holy Cow. All right. So when I saw this video on the Twitch stream, I was like, what is going on? You know, I had never heard of this band. Bill Paxton is singing in it. And I was like, is this a joke? What is this? And so when I did some more research and found out that this was obviously not a full time thing, but it wasn't a joke either. It was like a serious band that he and this guy put together. (laughs) And I was just like, wow. And the song is not too bad. I really liked it. (laughs) I did. And I watched the video before I read this or knew anything about them. So I thought, oh, Bill Paxton knows this band and he's going to lip sync in their video. That's cute. But he was actually in it. That's crazy. Yes. Yeah, that's actually him singing. So crazy. The album version that I put on the playlist, it starts with this dialogue. Oh, yeah. And every time it would come out on the playlist, I thought it was like a commercial. (laughs) 
and I was I, I got annoyed by it. But if you had asked me who this was, I would have said Devo. I mean, it sounds that's so funny because I like was Devo. thinking Oingo Boingo. Oh, that too, that too for sure. Definitely all in the same vein. And Anthony Michael Hall shows up in the video looking like Thomas Dolby. Anthony Michael Hall looked so good just before he hit that Hulked big up. spurt. <laughs> yeah. And he had the longish hair. He was so adorable. Well, I thought I saw more famous people, so I went to the credits. First of all, I thought the female that was overseeing the people working in the outside, I don't know what they were doing, digging something, <laughs> that was Linda Hamilton. No, it's funny that you say that, though, because it's not Linda Hamilton. It's Catherine Bigelow. She married James Cameron. Yeah, I think she was married to him at this time. She was James Cameron's first wife, and she's a director herself. She directed Near Dark, which starred Bill Paxton, which I think came out in like probably around this time, 86 or 87. And you didn't mention the guy from Roxanne as Adonis. Oh, that guy. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was so many people in there. I just had to limit it. (laughs) Couldn't mention them all. Weren't we just talking about how gay the video for Crowded House Something So Strong is? Yes. This definitely takes the cake. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And it's got them beat and like how close their faces get when they're lip syncing to each other. Yeah. (laughs) I was really impressed by that, though. They do do this choreographed face work, like face movement. They really must have worked hard on this because they were like 100% in sync. You got to watch the video, folks. I would watch it again. And not just for the shirtless. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely an awesome one that I was glad to be introduced to. All right, Joe. Well, that is it for this week. Yeah, we got to prepare because we just mentioned the record store Electric Fetus and we are traveling very soon. We might stop in there this weekend. I think we will. We are recording this before our weekend in Minneapolis, so we'll have a report on that next week. Yes. Anything else we need to mention, Joe? Nope, I think that's it. All right. Well, why don't you take us out this week? Folks, thanks for listening. And we just have one wish for all of you, and that is to stay safe. Oh, and to be kind. So there's two. And be kind to yourself and to others. And if someone's not being kind to you, you know what you can say to them? You better be good to me. Did you ever read that Holly Knight book? No, not yet. God, get off my uh, back. You should have got an audio book since you have that drive this weekend. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Susanna Hoffs book. Are you going to read that? I didn't know there was one. What? What do you mean? She wrote a novel. Have we talked about this? <laughs> I thought we did. No, the last time we talked about her, we were talking about how she has a new album of covers coming out. Oh, yeah. I forgot all about that. It's all about the book now. Okay. Okay. It's getting really, really good reviews, too. Interesting. All right. Mm-hmm. I was going to try to see if they have it at the airport, but that might just be a pipe dream. Yeah. Okay. Keep your eyes out for Susanna Hoff's book as well. Yeah. This has been Book Watch. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye. Bye.